Ache Willow. Chapter 3 The Steampunk Monstrosity. I don't think I've ever taken the time to explain how much I hate violence. It's not so much that I'm afraid of committing violence, I just don't think I'm any good at it. Like math, if I'm not immediately talented, I want nothing to do with it. Although the drive from Montreal wasn't exactly quaint and comfortable, it had gone down without significant incident. When I picked up the fillet knife from my kitchen last night, I thought of it more as a deterrent. If my driver became a little too frisky or threatening, I could have pulled the knife out and threatened to separate him from his skin. Hopefully, that'd be enough for him to abandon me by the side of the road. Better than having my body dumped in some forgotten ditch somewhere, right? The moment I set foot safely out of the truck, I assumed any chance of this being a problem was gone. I wave my weapon in front of me with what I feel are deft movements full of threat and menace. I know how to debone a fish in less than a minute, and my comfort with the knife shows in my actions. At least, I hope it does. Otherwise, I look like a fool waving her arms around, more likely to cause injury to myself than others. Gulliver has both hands up, palms out. I should recognize that as the peace offering it clearly is, but in my panic, I fail to see the obvious. I was probably a second or two from taking a serious stab at Gulliver when Helen Edna, Notary Public, and Voice of Reason intervened. Would either of you care to explain what it is I'm seeing right now? Her voice had the calm power of bureaucracy, as if witnessing clients engaged in paranoid knife fights were a daily occurrence in her line of business. It's enough to snap me back to reality. I'm not sure I want to admit that I'm being unreasonable, knife-waving and all, but having her here as witness does de-escalate my reaction enough to lower the blade. I, I'm sorry, I mutter, looking for a logical explanation for my behavior. There's a tense moment, and I expect Helen to interrupt it with some matter-of-fact statement in her patented, passionless monotone. Instead, it's Gulliver's deep-throated laughter that echoes through the aquilo, rattling the dust-coated glasses. It's my fault, he says, wiping a tear from his eye. I talked Miriam's ear off about serial killers and murderers on the way from Montreal, then made a crack about the bodies being found, and well... He smiles, his perfect white smile, a pearly apology. Ah, says Helen with some measure of satisfaction. You know each other from earlier. Fine. My imagination got away with me. It's not clear whether I mean that or not. Gulliver towers above me and kept blocking my way out. I had every reason to feel threatened. Enough to pull a knife on the guy? That's more of a gray area. Here you go. Helen hands Gulliver a piece of paper, already dismissing the incident. In case you need it translated, this gives me the power to refuse any further deliveries or any sort of interaction with the property in the advent of doors to fours passing. Gulliver takes the document and starts to read it. Index finger and thumb play around with the shape of his chin as he ponders it. He seems so adamant to be able to do these deliveries for my dead great-grand-aunt, looking over the piece of paper like a sommelier perusing a wine list. I almost expect him to pull out a pair of glasses and set them on the bridge of his nose so he can really get into the fine print. This only counts until the property is passed on through the will, he says, handing over the document. And as far as I can tell, 
The inheritor is right here. A jerk of his head in my direction is all that's needed to get me to shudder. The ghosts of my paranoia won't let me relax, even with Helen there and in broad daylight. So she had indeed gone to get some missing documents, and apart from that brief moment when I branched a knife at him, Gulliver hasn't done anything particularly hostile, has he? And now he's all smiles again, nudging his chin in my direction to make me his accomplice against Helen Edna and her rules. Not if she doesn't accept the inheritance, Helen states, the very voice of the letter of the law. Then I do. Where do I sign? The decision is quick, unreasoned, but so satisfying. Like a loaded bagel after an empty night, the decision feeds a hunger I hadn't realized was there. The plan is still to sell the place. I may be charmed by the ache willow, but there's no way I'm moving from Montreal to this forgotten speck on the map. Everything and everyone here is weird. Small town weird. The weirdest weird of all. Besides, this is a stepping stone to my dreams, not the headstone marking where I bury them. Are you certain, Ms. Dufour? Helen Edna asks. I'm not sure this place really suits you, and I doubt you're what Doris had in mind as a successor. Her tone is flat and emotionless, like most of what she says, but the barbs are no less sharp. I think the preferred candidate to fill Doris's shoes have long signed away their right to the place. Positive, I answer, as defiantly as possible. With a sigh and a shrug, Helen Edna, notary public, takes out a handful of documents, an elegant black fountain pen, and begins the long and annoying process of having me sign and initial all the papers. All the while, Gulliver keeps bringing in boxes— but by the time he's done, setting down a hefty bag of oats on the counter, we were barely halfway through everything Helen had to throw at me. Eventually, Gulliver finishes unloading his truck and leaves. I'm so preoccupied that I barely flinch when he pats my shoulder on the way out. By the time I put my last initial down, I can barely feel my wrist anymore. Helen Edna looks satisfied as she puts the papers away, tucked safely in her leather attache. Fishing around in her pockets for a moment, she pulls out an ornate ring of keys. As she flips through them, each key catches the sun in turn, creating a cascading twinkle that looks almost magical, like sunset reflected over the waves on a Caribbean evening. The round one is for the apartment upstairs. None of the utilities have been turned off, though you might want to find the water main to make sure it's still open. I still need to completely validate your identity and all that, but for the time being, technically, the place is yours. Mine. Helen Edna makes her way out, swinging the door open and setting the welcome chimes ringing. I hadn't noticed them before, probably because the door was propped open for Gulliver to bring in his delivery, but it seems fitting that the Aquilo waited until it was back in Dufour hands to speak its own voice. Mine. I've never come close to owning property. The closest would be when Trevor and I first rented our apartment. Back then, we felt like we owned the place. Two bedrooms, a kitchen, a living room, and a somewhat modern bathroom, all to ourselves. It was intoxicating. But if that was like having a beer, this is closer to reaching the bottom of a fifth of whiskey. The room spins as I consider the implication. Mine. Each of the chairs in this room, all the tables, the counter, the antique coffee machine, the very floor, all of it is mine. Even the apartment upstairs, which I haven't even set foot in, is mine. 24 hours ago, I hadn't even heard of Aquilo or Doris Dufour. Now all of her earthly belongings are under my name until I can sell them. 
It's too much to take. I burst through the back door, starving for some fresh air. All I'm greeted with is the stench of two dumpsters, ripe from bellies full of garbage in a day in the hot sun. In daylight, the garbage bins are probably a bright green, but as the afternoon stretches on and they're swallowed by shadows, the hue turns to that of pine needles. They sit in the open alleyway between the Aquilo Cafe and a municipal park on the U.S. side of town. I can see someone shuffling between the trees, thin and lanky. In Montreal, I never would have thought to interact with them, but in sleepy little Aquilo? I don't actually wave at them, but the idea does cross my mind. Focus slowly returns, despite the stench of rotting trash. The world stops dancing around my head, and leaning on the doorframe of the back door, I start to listen to the sounds of the village again. A rare car engine mumbles from the other side of the building, and my breathing comes in heavy and tired. Otherwise, there's an annoying silence to the village. Compared to Montreal, it's like attending a corpse. There's no life here. Not since the sun started dipping toward the horizon. In the city, there would be voices and footsteps. Airplanes would regularly rumble through the sky, and music would sometimes find its way out of car windows or bars and restaurants. You'd have to seek out silence in Montreal, and even if you found it, the pulse of the city would never be too far. Here, there's nothing but rare motor vehicles, the wind, and hissing. Hissing? The bins are hissing at me. My already addled brain, tired from the roller coaster of my life coming apart and then turning on a dime into an entirely new direction, isn't firing on all cylinders. So clearly the garbage isn't what's hissing, and I'm too dumb and curious not to inch closer and find out what it is. Like some cartoon burglar, I tiptoe across the alley, gravel crunching like breakfast cereal under my feet despite my efforts. The hissing gets more intense, louder, and more aggressive the closer I get to my target. My hand reaches out. Fingers grip the sticky yet oily rim of the first bin's lid. I barely take notice of the revolting texture, my senses focused instead on the sound of my own racing heart and the intermittent threat from the metal container. The lid is heavier than I estimated, and I can't seem to lift it with one hand, just as I reach out to try and give it a good shove open. Bang! Something behind the metal containers falls over with a loud clatter. I swear to God my heart stopped for a solid ten seconds right then and there. By all rights, I should be dead, and it's just by virtue of my own terror that my blood started flowing again. Then, as if I was the one trespassing on their territory, a line of six raccoons saunter out from between the garbage bins. Twelve beady eyes fixate on me as they parade across the alley, oblivious to my medical distress. One of them seems to have a red tag on its ear. Another, as big as a fat Labrador, stands in front of the others. I don't know if raccoons have alphas or pack leaders or whatever, but that fat raccoon is definitely the boss. An obese monarch like a garbage-dwelling Henry VIII. He doesn't limit himself to glaring, but I swear that in his own hissing way, he's threatening me. Once his cord of trash is well on their way to the park, he gives me one final look before waddling after them. Threaten me? On my property? Oh, it's on, you fat little rabies incubator. The water main was indeed closed, but it doesn't take much to get it open again. It's not the need for a clean shower or to tidy up the place that motivates me to find it. 
Rather, an imposing and antique-looking coffee machine begs to be put to use. After all, I've been up since the crack of dawn after a fitful night and then a terrible day. I'm entitled to my addiction of choice. Bubbling, gurgling, and hissing, the machine delivers on the promise of a steaming hot cup of coffee. Either the need and anticipation heightens the flavor, or this is the best mug of joe I've ever put to my lips. The very last of the sun's light dips below the modest skyline of Aquilo, forcing me to switch the lights on in the cafe. The wood furniture and accents take on a rich, cozy glow under the incandescent bulbs, painting the dining room in European hues. It is a welcoming place, and I allow a hint of kinship to weave itself into my heart as I think about who Doris might have been. If nothing else, she and I had similar tastes. I start to notice that the walls of the cafe haven't managed to keep the strange of the town from seeping in. One of the tables is set on the National Divide and is bisected with faded red and blue lines. There's a frame with a painting of a white cloud that looks just like the one that was hovering over town earlier in the day. A row of wooden spoons with brass plates under each are hung on the wall behind the cash register. Each is used and weathered, burnt at the tip and worn at the handle. They remind me of magic wands, crafted to match the personality of its owner. The more I sip my cooling cup, the darker the streets of Aquilo get, and the more the cafe looks like something out of the Shire, or transplanted from Scotland, or a version of New England that hasn't existed for a hundred years. I close my eyes to soak in the calm and silence. My problems are far from gone, but they sure do feel far away for now. Of course, it couldn't last. No sooner do I find my peace that it's once again shattered, this time by the sound of chimes and the squealing of door hinges. I'm sorry, we're closed. I don't even bother opening my eyes, expecting a shy apology or perhaps an outraged grumbling, followed by a quick exit. Instead, I hear a stool moving across ceramic tiles and the settling of wood under a new weight. I open my eyes only to be greeted by the most unwelcome sight. A customer. I'll just have my usual, a strange short woman says. She doesn't explain what her usual is, nor even bother to make eye contact, preferring to dig through her purse and retrieve a tube of moisturizer instead. I'm sorry, I repeat, but we're closed. Intense soil-brown eyes lock into mine. The calm vanishes from the woman's round features, and instead a creeping impatience takes root. Without looking, she squirts a teaspoon of bone-white cream into her palm and starts rubbing it into her dark copper skin. Darling, she says, a warning in her voice, you'd do best to remember everyone's usual around here. There's a ritual to it, and believe me, you do not want to mess with a ritual. I'm not planning on staying long enough for that to matter, not to mention we are closed. For me, that would just be a coffee with cream and two sugars and an almond biscotti on the side, though I suppose I can do without the biscotti for tonight. She looks around as if discovering that the coffee shop is in disarray for the first time since coming in. I don't have any cream or sugar, and I certainly don't have any biscotti. Ma'am, we're closed. I'm sorry for the inconvenience. She frowns and lifts her chin. Shoulder-length hair bounces as she straightens her back with indignation. Don't you ma'am me, girl. I'm Olivia Fig, and you either call me Olivia or not at all. 
Who is this? Some local celebrity? I manage to keep the thought off my lips and watch as Olivia Fig puts her tube of moisturizer away. Her indignation melts like marshmallow on hot mocha, and by the time the clasp clicks shut, my unwanted guest is all smiles and local flavor again. I relent. Is black coffee okay? I can probably crack open a bag of sugar from the kitchen if you really need it. I don't even know what to charge this woman for black coffee, or how to work this register. It's a dinosaur made with tin and bakelite. I could absolutely murder someone with it, assuming I could lift the monstrosity. Where are the cups? How do I clean up after she's done? Why does she insist? Black is fine, she says, setting her massive purse on the counter. It'll be a minute, though. I've just barely figured this machine out. I scrounge up another cup, pull up my sleeves, and say a prayer to whatever god has purview over ancient steampunk coffee machines. I try the same combination of dials and buttons that gave me my cup of coffee and am met with nothing but a hiss from the monster. The damn thing looks like it's straight out of a Frankenstein movie. All dials and pipes and brass, it defies comprehension. We have a huge three-spout coffee machine at work. It's a beast, and it took me about five full shifts before I got the hang of it, but even it has nothing on this antique. You wouldn't know where the instructions are, would you? On a stone tablet, maybe? The flippant question does tease a smile out of Olivia. I don't know why that matters to me. So far, the denizens of Aquilo, from Helen Edna to those weird guys in white robes to that fat jerk of a raccoon, even Gulliver, have done nothing to impress me. Olivia is different, and I can't figure out why. Maybe it's the simplicity of her. Everyone else has some weird thing that rubs me the wrong way. All Olivia wants is coffee, and while that's another hair in my soup, it's such a simple thing, so relatable. Getting coffee was my number one goal the moment I was left alone here. You know, you are Doris's kin, aren't you? I toss her a sidelong glance as I pull a reluctant lever. Steam sounds like it wants to burst out of the machine the same way some sort of confession appears to be bubbling at the surface of Olivia. I grunt and pull up my sleeves, ignoring the question in favor of doubling my own efforts. Mm-hmm, Olivia says. That's what Doris would have said. I didn't say anything. Exactly. Doris was a quiet one. Big on doing, not on talking. <laughs> then I am definitely not that closely related. After all, it's my big stupid mouth that got me kicked out of cooking school. And not being as calm and collected as Cindy certainly didn't help me keep Trevor. Hell, I wouldn't be surprised if they cut my hours at the coffee shop because I mouthed off to a client. The quiet one isn't a title I think anyone would bestow upon me except in the most sarcastic way. Mm-hmm. A simple change in inflection on Olivia's part changes the whole meaning behind her wordless mumble. From knowing acknowledgement to knowing doubt. The common thread is knowing, which Olivia seems to be an expert at. I manage to get the ancient contraption to make coffee again. I salvage two mismatched cups from a drawer in the kitchen and fill one with some raw sugar. It's the most ad hoc coffee run in the world, and I feel stupid watching Olivia slide a toonie in my direction as payment. I can't. Sure you can, she says, indignant that I would refuse payment. I just saw you pull this place half apart to make this coffee. You deserve a little something. Thank you. We both sip our coffee and both make an effort not to show our disappointment. 
It's not terrible coffee, but I'm an experienced barista, and if this monstrous device can't even make a decent cup, what good is it? I shoot it an irritated glance, like a warning shot, but all I get in return is a half dozen distorted reflections of my own anger. This means war, you piece of garbage. How long do you think you'll stick around? Olivia grimaces as she asks the question, reeling from the bitter drink. I'm not sure. Not long, I suppose, until the notary has validated all the paperwork and I can put this place on the market. Wouldn't be looking to own a coffee shop, would you? Hmm. Take the Aquilo for money? I'm not that big of a fool. And you're not going to get anyone from here to take it off your hands either. Just Doris's dying wish that it stay in the family, and people in this town know better than to go against Doris's wishes. Doris is dead and buried, I think. Her wishes don't matter so much right now. I don't tell Olivia any of this, nodding instead. Maybe I'll find someone from out of town then. I'm more than willing to sell the place below market value. Besides, it's a charming little cafe. I'm sure someone will fall in love with it very quickly. Mm-hmm. Olivia sips her coffee, neglecting to grimace at the terrible aftertaste. Girl... I don't mean to be telling you how to live your life, but if you ain't gonna run the ache willow, please be a dear and pass it along to whoever's next in line. The place deserves to stay in the family. That sounds precisely like you're telling me how to live my life. Against my better judgment, I finish my cup of coffee in two large gulps. The bitter liquid burns my tongue and throat, but leaves enough taste buds alive that I might suffer the flavor. I hope that Olivia gets the message, that our conversation and her welcome are at an end. It's a fool's hope. Well, maybe I think you need all the help you can get. Pardon? I slam my cup on the counter. I'm doing fine, thank you very much, and I don't need any advice from a stranger living in some backwards podunk town. She frowns. It's that kind of mother's frown, the one that's perfect balance of anger and disappointment. You know the one where the eyes stay wide open, pushing up at the eyebrows that in turn knit themselves down. Her lips get thin and pale as she presses them against each other. I think once you've stayed here long enough, you'll come to find that Aquilo is anything but backwards and certainly not a podunk town. I'll have to live with the mystery because I don't plan on staying. Your loss, she says, pushing her half-full cup in my direction. I almost expect her to ask for her two dollars back. You'll never find a more welcoming and interesting little community than Aquilo. I don't bother to think of a clever reply before opening my mouth to speak. I want to say I've had an interesting enough life already, but something interrupts me. We use the expression like nails on a chalkboard liberally to describe irritating noises. It's the kind of exaggeration we lean on to get our point across that something is terrible on the ears. This noise, however, is exactly like nails on a chalkboard. Except that in this scenario, we are inside the chalkboard and the sound is coming from everywhere outside. A moment passes and we hear a hissing coming from the back alley, followed by the metallic clutter of a dumpster lid crashing down. My lips part again to let me speak. It's just the raccoons out back, I want to say, proving that I'm not some naive city mouse. But then a shadow passes across the back window. A silhouette, both tall and thin, shambling about slowly through the alley. Its slow gait reminds me of the homeless man I saw wandering the trees out back. It seems animated by the same aimless drive and awkward stride, like it's on the brink of falling over between each step. 
Instead of words, my lips mouth quietly. What the hell? All Olivia offers as an answer is to put her hand over mine and a finger to her lips. She doesn't seem afraid, not the same way I am. There's a tremor throughout my whole body. My knees shake, ready to do their part if I need to bolt into a sprint. My eyes dilate and my skin prickles with goosebumps. I am flight. Olivia, on the other hand, fixes the window, monitoring every passage of the shadowy figure. The finger touching her lips is firm and unwavering, a warning to me to stay quiet and to whatever is out there to stay out. She is fight. A hand, bony and frail, hovers over the window as the figure passes again. Its fingers touch the glass and the cafe is suddenly filled with the ear-splitting screech. It only lasts a few seconds, but echoes through the air and in my bones for a solid minute afterwards. Olivia's hand closes on mine as the figure settles behind the back door of the Aquilo. My mind races, struggling to remember if I lock the door after my argument with the fat raccoon. A stray thought goes in the scavenger's direction, hoping he's okay. I want to sprint to the door and make sure it's secure, and that whoever, whatever it is that's standing outside remains there, but Olivia's hand presses down, reassuring and restraining all at once. A soft rattle at first, then more insistent as the door handle is tested. The door shakes on its hinges with increasing violence. For a second, I think back to my fillet knife, convinced the frame itself is going to fail and I'll have to fend for myself against a real threat this time. Just as I'm about to yank my hand from underneath Olivia's, the rattling, pulling, and shaking stops. The shadow shambles one more time across the window. I know it's the last time because at least ten minutes trickle by before either of us dares move again. Fine, Olivia breaks the silence, nearly stopping my heart dead in my ribcage. Aquila isn't perfect, but it's certainly not boring either. What was that? Damned if I know, but you won't mind me going home so I don't have to find out, do you? She lets go of my hand and picks up her purse. She's short and stocky and looks like she can probably do well for herself in a fight. But the way that shape rattled the door, I don't think I'd wish an encounter with it on my worst enemy. Even Gulliver would probably have a rough time against whatever that was. You're going home? Out there? Alone? I'm surprised by my concern for this woman who, a few minutes ago, was nothing but an annoyance. A nosy annoyance at that. Still, I'm not heartless. If the shadow turns out to be the one responsible for the bodies left around town— and at this point I'm almost completely convinced it is, then it might still be looking for a victim. You're staying here? Alone? Not the answer I was expecting. I'm half grateful to be reminded that, unless I want to spend the night here, sleepless, huddled in a corner and clutching my fillet knife, I might want to find a hotel to stay at. It's out of my current budget, but budgets are for the living. Come on, Olivia says, reading the worry on my face, no doubt. You can stay at my place. I'll show you how to fix a proper cup of coffee. Maybe even fix you a decent breakfast in the morning. I couldn't argue. Even the jab at my barista skills slid in and out of my ego without drawing any blood or leaving a wound. I don't know the first thing about Olivia Fig, but when the shadow threatened us both, her hand shielded mine. It takes a moment to shut off all the lights and turn off the devil's own coffee machine, all under the watchful eye of my new benefactor. Like Gulliver, I don't quite trust the woman, and I'd love to sneak my trusty fillet knife back into my bag, but those dark irises just won't leave me. The front of the cafe isn't anywhere as scary as the back. 
I wouldn't exactly call Rue Principal bustling, but we're not alone. A handful of pedestrians are milling about while an old sedan struggles to get into a parking spot in front of a bar. Street lamps project small islands of illumination, warding off the shadows where I expect to see a monster wherever I look. Come along, Olivia urges, holding her purse in one tight hand while taking my elbow with the other. Ms. Fig? I ask, stuffing my keys into my pocket. Only people who call me Ms. Fig are my accountant and Mr. Fig, and only when they know I'm mad at them. She stops to take a look at me, and I notice that, even though I'm not exactly tall myself, Olivia is even shorter. Out with it. Olivia. I savor the name like a new dish. What was that? Hmm, she says, pulling me along so we can start walking again. A half-smile forms on her tight lips as she turns to face ahead. Would you rather a comfortable lie or the painful truth? I give it a moment. On one hand, I've had my share of painful truths for the time being. A comfortable lie sounds like a very pleasant place for my consciousness to lie down right now. But that's just not me, I guess. Give me the truth, I suppose. Olivia Fig tries to maintain a stoic demeanor. She straightens her back and keeps her eyes on the sidewalk, guiding me calmly to what seems to be her car. But I can feel the tension in the hand holding me. Her fingers are tight, clutching and unclutching my elbow in a fidgety rhythm. I think, she starts, hesitating a little to look for the word. I think that was a demon. Aquilo is written by J.F. Dubow, narrated and produced by me, Amy Frost. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear more, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your preferred podcast platform. You have no idea how much it helps. Questions, comments? Email us at aquilo at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the username Aquilo. Aquilo.